Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We are in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and excellent news is, is that we are going to finish this chapter today, which means we're going to be covering a lot of ground, especially when you compare the type of activity we've had in the past, where we move fairly slowly, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. So that means next week, we will actually be breaking into the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, Lord willing. And uh, so I'm getting excited to wrap up this very long series. That being said, the writer is going to continue. Remember last week he talked about Esau and uh, how not to be like him, warning you against being profane like him, selling your soul for a bowl of stew. Well, now he's going to take us into history yet once more, and he's going to take us back to the Mount Sinai experience. And really what he is going to do is convey to us how awesome this experience really was. And so in verse 18, we pick it up here. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. Verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged. I mean, look at that. They begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And so the writer reminds his audience, his brethren of their forefathers and what they experienced. They experienced something that was so terrifying. They were so overwhelmed. They didn't want to experience it again. In fact, they basically came out and said, make it stop. It was too much. And so they said, Moses, you know what? You speak with us and, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And so the writer is capturing that intensity right here, reminding them what the forefathers went through. To put this further into context, I want to take you to... Uh, some rabbinical commentary in Shemot Rabbah, which is to say Exodus Rabbah. It's, it's a group of works, if you will, midrashing, commenting on the Torah and the experiences of their forefathers. They record something fascinating, and I threw this in here because we have a very special festival coming up, and that's the Feast of Shavuot, or some would identify it as Pentecost. Well, I want to share this with you because this all ties into what the writers really conveying. And this is in the very, this is commentary in the very uh, selected portion of which the writer just drew from. Now, it says this, the Torah says, and all the people saw the voices. So here they're at Mount Sinai and it's saying it saw the voices. Note that it does not say the voice as in singular, but the voice is in the plural. Well, what is that supposed to mean? Well, as we continue, they tell us, Wherefore Rabbi Yochanan said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 languages so that all the nations should understand. Now you think about that for a second. How amazing is this recordation, this insight into the actual Mount Sinai experience? Number one, let me say this. The fact that the Aseret HaDevarim, these Ten Commandments by God, were spoken not just in one language, not in the Hebrew language, 
but spoken in every language of the then known world, it was signifying prophetically what God intended to do with the gospel long before it ever happened. But it's interesting, at least I find it interesting, that it happened first to Israel and it was it was revealed to Israel. They experienced it. Now, it makes sense because everything begins with Israel. The covenant began with Israel, but it is just so amazing to me how this prophecy of the entire world being able to hear the truth, the truth of God, his commandments. Uh, that's an incredible thought. And, you know, the number 70, as, as the rabbis allude to here, is split up into 70 languages. It was... It was considered 70 all the languages of the world because of Genesis 10. You have what is known as the table of nations, these descendants of Noah, because Noah populated the entire globe with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And so as you go to Genesis 10, it talks about these 70 nations. And then we could take it further. You know, Israel went down as a whole into Egypt with 70 people. There's so much commentary we could talk about how Israel 70 going down was marked out to represent the whole of the world. I'm not going to go down that path right now, but fascinating stuff. All this to say, this event that the writer of Hebrews that he is describing is beyond awesome. Now, to peel this back a little bit further... I actually want to take you to the Mount Sinai experience and show you what the rabbis are talking about in regard to these voices. So let's go to Exodus 20, verse 18. And all the people witness the thunderings, the lightning flashes. Now in the English, this doesn't sound like much in light of what we just read in the commentary. But when you go to the Hebrew this completely transforms. And let me read it to you in the Hebrew. Vachal ha'am. So, and all the people, ro'im, which is to say saw. Now, are you one, another word that they used here is witnessed. They witnessed. So, all the people witnessed at, I'm going to highlight this, hakalot. The translators oftentimes translate this thunderings, but the Hebrew is kol. Kol would be the singular. It's for voice. That's what it is. And so naturally, as the rabbis, they're reading and studying the Torah in its original language, they come across and say, hakalot, it's kol in the plural, kalot. And so literally, you would, you would read it as, now all the people witnessed the voices. But it gets better. And then it goes on and says, va'et halapidim. And that term, where lightning flashes, actually in the Hebrew, it's torches. It's literally translated all over the place. This is what, like, for example, when you go to Gideon, the story of Gideon, which we did not that long ago. Lapid is the term. And so here you see it's lapidim. And so it's in the plural. So it's literally a torch. It's a flame of fire. All right. So how it should read, if we want to be literal here, it should read as follows. Now, all the people witness the voices and the torches. Now you think about that for a second, this Mount Sinai experience, where according to the rabbis, when the voices went out, they saw the voices and they heard 
in all the languages of the world. Now, what does that sound like? Well, it sounds exactly like Acts chapter 2, where tongues of fire, these torches of fire came down, were resting on people because the Holy Spirit had descended, and they were speaking in all the languages of the then-known world in the first century. Oh, and it's interesting, at Pentecost, at Shavuot, is the time this happened. The very time the rabbis tell us that the Mount Sinai experience happened. It's traditionally said that Israel received the Torah, received the Aseret HaDevarim, the Ten Commandments, at Shavuot. And so, I mean, you want to talk about an awesome event. I mean, I don't know how else to articulate. It is incredible, right? Well, let's go to Psalm 29 and just build on this even further. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. You think about that. So when the voice speaks, it divides the flame of fire, all these torches going forth, hewing out fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes deer give birth. And this is in the context of prematurely. They were not ready to give birth, but when they heard the Lord, they couldn't contain it. And strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. This is the experience that Israel had at Mount Sinai. Absolutely debilitating. And again, it was so terrifying, they didn't ever want to have it again. They didn't want to see the fire They didn't want to hear his voice. It was too much. He is so holy, they couldn't handle it. So Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. And thus, they asked for the mediator. They asked for Moshe, and they got him. And actually, you can read in the Torah, and the Lord actually says, what they have asked for is good. Okay, because had they heard it anymore, it would have killed them. It's just an insanely awesome event. Now, with that kind of context, let's continue on. The writer says this, For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, and this was the commands that they were given before they were to hear it, they were to put a fence all the way around the mountain so that no beast would go to it. It shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. You want to talk about the holy mountain of God. And so terrifying was the sight that Moshe said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So get this, the mediator of the covenant himself, who had experiences with the Lord, prior experiences, was terrified. If you put this in its larger context, it's even more impressive in the sense of, think about this. Think of everything that Israel went through. Think they saw the awesome and mighty hand of God as he rained down judgments. They went through the Red Sea with waters, a wall to them on the left and a wall to them on the right. Think about what they saw. They saw their enemies defeated. They didn't lift a sword. They didn't do anything. And at the same time, they entirely plundered the Egyptians, taking their wealth with them. Now, think about all this. It all pales in comparison to what they experienced at the mountain when the Lord revealed his glory. And so you just can't paint a more awesome and intimidating picture, right? We go on, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Isn't that amazing? He says, but you, meaning in his day, the first centuries, my Jewish brethren, to you, guess what? You have come to a different mountain. You've actually come to the actual mountain, Mount Zion. You have come to a heavenly Jerusalem. What you possess now, your experience now, is greater than what our forefathers experienced at Mount Sinai. Now, how do you wrap your head around that? This is what the writer is conveying, that what we have, we have access to the heavenly Jerusalem through faith in the Messiah Yeshua. That is an awesome, awesome thought. And so what we have today as Jew and Gentile, beyond compare. Now, this is something that the Apostle Paul, we find, communicated to the Galatians. And it's worth going back there. This is something we looked at long ago, but we're going to head back because they're both saying the same thing. Paul is speaking to Gentiles, while the writer of the Hebrews is speaking to Jews. And, and again, I tell you, and this is significant, they didn't deliver a different message. It was the same message. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman. Okay, so we're talking about Hagar here. She was the maidservant of Sarah. The other by a free woman. Free woman is Sarah. But he, meaning Ishmael, who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he, meaning Isaac, of the free woman, Sarah, through promise. And so you have Hagar giving birth to Ishmael, you have Sarah giving birth to Isaac. Massive difference between the two. Ishmael was a product of flesh, that's it. Isaac was a promise, was a product of God's promise. He was a product of God's word. He was a miracle. I mean, Sarah couldn't give birth. She couldn't have children. And yet she did because God spoke it into existence. So vastly different. Well, the Apostle Paul, he goes on in verse 24, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So this whole experience that the writer of Hebrews just laid out and is reminding his brothers about what his what their forefathers experienced. Paul is talking about the very same thing, and he articulates it in the sense, yeah, but that gave birth to bondage, and this is representative of the maidservant, the slave. This is representative of Hagar. Verse 25, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. So Paul brings this Hagar and says, the one that's in bondage, that is that gives birth to bondage, this is what our forefathers experienced back in Mount Sinai. Oh, and it gets crazier. And corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is as in bondage and is in bondage with her children. Okay, so Paul's like, he takes Mount Sinai, the Mount Horeb situation, and says, yeah, this is the same as the Jerusalem we now have, which was... They had a functioning temple. The sacrifices were happening. People were going to the temple for the feast. Everything was moving as it should, you know, according to the temple services. And he's like, it's all in bondage. And so this is Hagar. And again, you know, how many times have you heard me say, you know, you say something like this as a Jew in the first century, it could get you in a lot of trouble with the Jewish leaders. 
they would take you for another Jeremiah, speaking evil against their people and against their city. But verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is mother of us all. So Sarah is representative of this Jerusalem above, the very Jerusalem that the writer of Hebrews is actually talking about. The Jerusalem we have today, we have access to this. It is so much greater, built upon greater promises. I want to further put this in perspective for you. I want to take you to the Pseudepigrapha, specific book there known as Second Baruch. It's important to know this particular book was actually written in the same time period as Galatians, Paul writing to the Galatians, as the writer of Hebrews writing to his Jewish brethren. It was all written at the same time. And in the sense, this particular book was actually written a little bit later, 70, or after 70 AD. It's written right after the destruction of the temple. And you'll, you'll catch a whiff of that as we break into this. But what I want you to recognize is that there is a common thread between Hebrews and Galatians and 2nd Baruch. There is a common thread amongst these first century Jews and what they understood in regard to Jerusalem. This is powerful. And so I want to take you there. 2nd Baruch chapter 3 verse 1. And I said, O Lord, my Lord, have I come into the world for this purpose that I might see the evils of my mother? Not so, my Lord. If I have found grace in thy sight, first take my spirit that I may go to my fathers and not behold the destruction of my mother. Now, what did Paul just call the new Jerusalem? He just called it the mother of us all. And now here you have another first century Jew, later first century, calling Jerusalem his mother. He doesn't want to see his mother like this because she has been destroyed. Rome had come in and laid waste to her, and he wants to die. He can't handle it, uh, the sight of what he's seen. Well, we jump into chapter 4. The Lord is going to respond to Baruch. And the Lord said unto me, The city shall be delivered for a time, and the people shall be chastened during a time, and the world will not be given over to oblivion. Dost thou think that this is that city of which I said, On the palms of my hands have I graven thee? In other words, what the Lord is saying, he's actually, this. first of all, this comes out of Isaiah 49. And we all know the passage, Isaiah 49, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And for us believers in Yeshua today, you know, you can read the book of Isaiah in a very, very different manner than many of the first century Jews prior to Yeshua uh, revealing himself. Uh, in other words, hindsight is twenty twenty. We understand exactly what it meant when he says, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Well, if you go back to Isaiah 49, verse 16, you look actually look at the passage, that statement was made in regard to Yerushalayim. It was made in regard to Jerusalem. So here you had the Lord saying, I've inscribed you, Jerusalem, on the palms of my hands. But you need to understand, Jerusalem is the synecdoche for the totality of the elect, for the totality of those who are going to be inheriting eternal life. With that said, look at how the Lord responds. 
Dost thou think that this is that city of which I said? On the palms of my hands have I graven. In other words, Baruch's looking at a destroyed Jerusalem. And the Lord says, you, do you really believe that this Jerusalem that is laid waste is the Jerusalem that I talked about in Isaiah 49? When I said it, I inscribed you on the, on the palms of my hands? Well, he continues to show him it's not. The building now built in your midst is not that which is revealed with me. That which was prepared beforehand here from the time when I took counsel to make paradise, which is to say the Garden of Eden. Now, this is fascinating. And showed it, in other words, the new Jerusalem, showed it to Adam before he sinned. But when he transgressed the commandment, it was removed from him as also paradise. Obviously, we know Adam was taken out of the garden. Verse 4, And after these things I showed it to my servant Avraham by night among the portions of the victims. In other words, he's referring back to Exodus 15 where Abraham falls asleep and has this terrifying dream that his descendants are going to go into captivity and they're going to be afflicted. And it's revealed here that the Lord actually revealed the Jerusalem, the ultimate, the eternal Jerusalem to Abraham on that night. I mean, what a mind-blowing concept. And we know, just for New Testament, just to build on that, we know God revealed amazing things to Abraham because Yeshua comes on the scene and says, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. I mean, the Lord held nothing back from Abraham. And there's even a dialogue saying, shall I hold withhold back what I'm about to do? Fascinating. Continuing on verse 5, and again, also, I showed it to Moshe on Mount Sinai when I showed to him the likeness of the tabernacle in all its vessels. And so what the Lord is saying is, I revealed it to Adam, I revealed it to Abraham, I revealed this Jerusalem to Moshe. They were all in the know in regard to this. Moving on to verse 6. And now, behold, it is preserved with me, as also paradise. Go, therefore, and do as I have commanded thee. In other words, it's with me. He is in the new Jerusalem. And there is going to be a coming a day that he will bring that down here upon earth. And we know this. We can read the book of Revelation and even rabbinic commentary in Exodus 15. And so this is one thing we know for certain. But be that as it may, even though that hasn't happened, we have it. We have access to this new Jerusalem by having access to Yeshua, who is the all in all, the king of Yerushalayim. Getting back to Hebrews. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. And so he's really building this up to say, do you understand what an awesome thing you have? Do you even know what you've been called into. You know, one of the things that I think we fail, and myself included, especially in the past, that we have failed miserably in, is expressing the greatness of what we've been called into. Where we really, a lot of people do not know it. And and, in a great way 
to testify to this and to confirm this, just simply look at how people are living their life. See, when you see people living their life in completely consumed and distracted by things of the world, they have no clue of what they've been called into. They have no clue of what Yeshua went through, the kind of sacrifice that he made, the pain, the suffering that he went through to save them. This is just the reality. There's just a, a severe blindness. And this is why I'm so impressed with this writer, and I know he speaks according to the Holy Spirit. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is doing everything right. I mean, he is a profound teacher. He's laying all these building blocks that are absolutely essential for you to be successful in your faith. And so he's laying this stuff out. It's just amazing. Now, looking at verse 23 here, where it says to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, the ecclesia is the term there, the ecclesia of the firstborn, which the prototokon, which, which is what it says here, it's the prototokos. It's what we discovered in chapter 1. This term is familiar to the writer. He's already used it, going back to chapter 1, of Yeshua. So when it says the ecclesia or the church of the firstborn, it's referring to the church of Christ. This is what he's saying. Who are registered in heaven, obviously whose names have been written, written in the Lamb's book of life. And it, it just makes you think about what Yeshua says. He conveys the exact same uh, message in Luke chapter 10 when his apostles come back to him and say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Yeshua's response is, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I give you power and authority to trample upon serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. It's not going to in any way hinder them or hurt them. Nevertheless, this is what he says, that he ends it by this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that these demons are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, or as the writer says here, registered in heaven. That's where we're to derive all this joy, knowing that through faith in Christ, through faith in Yeshua, our names are in heaven. We are absolutely guaranteed eternal life. And so I think about that. It is an awesome, awesome thought. And that's where you're going to derive your joy of knowing that, you know, even if somebody kills you in the flesh, it's not the end of it for you. You're waiting the most glorious habitation that could ever be described in the history of the universe. And that is the New Year Shalim. But every time we wake up, there we go, and we start looking with eyes of flesh over and over again. That's all we see, and we do not walk by faith. We walk by sight, and it's a killer. I'm telling you, it's, it is so deadly. Now, he goes on. He's not done. So this is what we've come to. We've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Verse 24, to Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And we've come to it all. I mean, the, the writer saying, you've been given everything. Do you understand this new covenant you've been, you've been brought into through faith in Yeshua, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection? Do you have a clue what you've come to? 
thank the Lord he is reminding us because this is something that we need to be reminded of daily of who we are in Yeshua and what he has done for us, what he has given us, what is going to be ours according to his authority and according to his power. In other words, I'm referring to our inheritance, our inheritance that is to come. Now, this statement, I can clarify this. I don't want to, I don't think we need to go too deep on this, but uh, where he talks about the, the the blood of sprinkling and clearly going back to the Torah, uh, when the first covenant was ratified, it was done through blood, right? But then he says that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, this is a question that I have had. Uh, what does it mean speaks better things than that of Abel? Well, if you just go back to the previous chapter, chapter 11, you'll discover exactly what that is because he had talked about how Abel's sacrifice was more excellent than that of Cain's. It was an excellent sacrifice. But when we start talking about the new covenant, when we start talking about having Yeshua revealed, the Lamb of God, and that sacrifice, that blows that out of the water. There is nothing in the old covenant that doesn't pale in comparison to Yeshua. I mean, this is what we have today. And this is something you have to believe. If you want this to have any value to, where's you, we got to have faith. We got to believe this. And when you actually believe it, it starts to cultivate something in your heart that you didn't know was possible. Cultivate this hope. It intensifies. It only grows your faith. Faith will build upon more faith. It will grow in itself, and you you will ponder things. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and you will start pondering things you, you never thought of before, and you will think with such clarity and such godliness and righteousness that's totally foreign to your flesh. Awesome. Trust me on this. It is, it is an awesome thing. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now, what does he mean here? Well, as we continue on, we get perfect clarity. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now, so God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now I want you to understand something. Where does, where does the shaking come from first and foremost? It's coming when, when, when we're talking about shaking heaven and earth. I'm telling you right now we're talking about the mouth of Yeshua. When he opens his mouth, we're told in Revelation 19, a sword will come out. And it is going to go out and destroy the adversaries of the living God. It is going to destroy the sinners from the earth. I love how Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians that Yeshua will come and destroy the lawless one. It's so fascinating. By the breath of his mouth. His mouth. And you you look at the seventh trumpet, there's going to be a massive 
earthquake that the history of the world has never experienced before. Why? Because Yeshua is going to open his mouth. And here's what's fascinating. It's not just going to be the earth shaking. It will be heaven as well. And actually, we could take it a step further to understand this in its proper context. When this is happening, the earth, we're told in 2 Peter 3, that the earth and the works that are in it, including the heavens, are going to be lit on fire. And they're going to be lit on fire by the word of the Lord by Yeshua himself, because the reality is he's going to destroy that which can't survive the shaking, that which can't survive the fire, it's going down. It's going to vanish. It's going to be destroyed, in which we could do a whole nother study. You can go through the Helator study. There's going to be nothing left. There's going to be no remnants. There's going to be no evidence. It will leave them neither root nor branch. Read Malachi. It'll leave them nothing. There will be no evidence of the wicked. Everything's going to burn. I love what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, Each one's work will become clear for the day, meaning judgment day, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. And so... You know, what does fire do? The only things that survive fire are things like gold, things like silver. And in the process, it's interesting, all anything that is impure within that, it comes to the surface, what we call dross, and it's discarded. Only those precious things, precious deeds of righteousness, done from a true godly motivation, wanting to please the Lord and out of the love that we really love our brother. That needs to be the motion. Those works of righteousness, those will survive. You know, when you're doing works of righteousness to be seen by men, to be accepted by men, do not expect that that work is going to receive a ward. It's not going to, it's going to burn up. Because you were seeking the approval of men and not the Lord. You were not doing it out of a pure heart. See, this is why the Lord says, when you fast, do it in secret. Don't go out boasting about it. Those who do so will have their reward at that time. But they're not going to have anything later. When you pray, go into your closet. Don't go to the corner of the street thinking men should be looking up to you. Amen. Continuing on, the writer is going to come to his closing statement here in chapter 12. He says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, cannot be, it's pure, it's holy, it's going to survive what is coming. When the universe itself is literally on fire, being destroyed, kingdom of heaven is going to be moved. Jerusalem's not going to be moved. So then he says, let us have grace. In other words, accept this beautiful free gift. The truth of who Yeshua is, the truth that he died for you and that he rose again, that he can be your intercessor, the truth that you can go to him when you're in need, when you're hurting, when you're sorrowful, that you can go and pray to him. We are to have, we are to possess this grace. We are to cling to it. Which we may serve, and it goes on, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Notice the structure of the faith here. 
the structure of the faith, that faith without works is dead. The whole concept is true faith will bear righteousness. So those who possess grace, if I'm going to receive grace, the response is to go out and serve God. I'm to serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There's to be a radical change in my behavior, in my patterns of my thoughts, in my deeds, in my speech, in the things that I receive, in my eyes that I, that I look at, the things that I hear, all of it will change if, in fact, I have truly received grace. You know, I think about Titus 2.11, where, where Paul tells Titus, but now the grace of God, meaning Yeshua, who is grace, has appeared to all men. So he's been revealed. And what it does is it basically testifies to us, it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we're supposed to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age. And so if we really say, oh, you know, I'm under grace, well, that's a statement to say, well, I am being taught by grace and it has thrust me into righteousness. It has thrust me into humility. It has thrust me into a desire for his word. It has thrust me into uh, the realm of prayer uh, to petition and spend time with him. It has thrust me into the arena of praise and worship. This is what true grace does. And this is what's being explained here. And, you know, one of my favorite psalms, it was the headline for the revival. Revive me. Bring me back to life, Lord, that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Revive me. Give me life according to your grace. I mean, this is what the writer's saying. According to your grace, give me life. Because I need to keep so that I can keep your Ten Commandments. See, the, the writer, the psalmist, recognizes this is the point of grace. It's so that we can walk in righteousness, not walk away from it, not denounce it by stating, hey, the law has been done away with. You know, God's commandments, they don't mean anything. That is not grace. That's what I call the devil's grace. A very, very wicked and perverse grace that knows rebellion, that knows disobedience. That is not the grace of the living God. Again, I, and uh, we could go back to the Torah, which is exactly what the writer is saying here is exactly what's expressed in the Torah. As you go to Deuteronomy 6, it specifically says, when your son comes to you and asks you, hey, hey, dad, mom, dad, why do we have to keep the Sabbath? Why do we have to keep the commandments? Why do I have to honor you? Why do I have to do any of these things? And the response is, well, son, the Lord our God, the King of the universe, sent his son to die for us. He brought us out of Egypt, and therefore he delivered us. He has shown us grace, and he has commanded us to keep his commandments. Now, this is virtually what is literally conveyed in Deuteronomy 6, is this reality. And so this is the understanding that the writer has. Yeah, we're to possess this grace and to move on into righteousness as Paul talks about right in Romans slaves of righteousness we were once slaves of sin but now we're called to be slaves of righteousness for holiness this is what we're called to the writer ends with this statement now listen to this this is awesome for our God is a consuming fire 
Okay, so why should I serve God acceptably and with reverence and with godly fear, as the writer just told us? Why should I do that? Well, the writer quickly reminds you, because God is a consuming fire. This is why we do it. Now, that being said, we need to dig into this statement a little bit. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it has some serious depth to it. The audience in the first century, hearing these words, absolutely no question about it, would have identified them right off the bat. And they would have understood the depth of this statement. It would have hit them hard in a relational way. Let me lay it out this way. If I was to say, I was going to say, let's sing the song, Jesus Loves Me, the, the little children's song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. If I only started out with Jesus Loves Me, virtually every person that is watching this right now would know the next line, This I Know. And then I would say, well, what comes after that? For the Bible tells me. And in other words, my point is this. When the writer says our God is a consuming fire, they knew the broader context of what this statement meant. And it is so powerful. I want to dig into this because you're going to walk away. This is, this is one of those precious pearl moments, if you will. And to do this, we got to, we got to go back to the Torah where the writer's actually drawing from. We're going to go to chapter 4, verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. Now, obviously, he's going to the top of the list, if you will, of the Ten Commandments. And the first thing he says is, don't you dare forget the covenant. Don't you dare forget our covenant that we've made with each other. On that... We go to verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. Elkanah. You need to remember that. Elkanah. He is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. A jealous God. See, this is the part that you need to see that really brings into a totality of understanding what it means for God to be this consuming fire. It's not just this inferno of wrath. That is a very decrepit interpretation and understanding. It's not just this inferno of wrath that we, God's in this, this big crazy fireball of wrath, always ready, you know, uh, ready to burst forth and kill everyone on the earth. As some people want to paint him, as the Old Testament God, and this is who he is. This is not what this is saying at all. And when you understand what it means for God to be a consuming fire in Elkanah, a jealous God, that's when you step back and it's like, wow. I mean, this is powerful. Looking at Elkanah, this is a term explicitly that is used of God in the context of covenantal marriage. I mean, we're talking about a marriage contract here. We're talking husband and wife. Now, you think of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. One of the things that he does there, and I'm not going to put it up, but you can go back and read it. He shares this great mystery of how the church is the bride of Christ. 
and he calls it a great mystery. But what he does is he plays off as, as a wife should submit to her husband. Okay? He plays off of this. He banters back and forth between the mystery of this relationship between the church and Christ and this relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. Ultimately, what you realize scripturally as you go through, you realize that God in giving marriage, and the, the first, this is just so awesome. You go back and what is the first thing that God does for Adam in essence was gave him a helper comparable to him. Gave her a helper, gave him Eve, brought him into marriage. He created covenantal marriage. This was all the way back at the very beginning. This is what happened. And that's so beautiful because that was a template. It was a prophetic template of the church's covenantal marriage to Yeshua. And marriage, physical marriage, would go out throughout the generations to give us a greater understanding of our relationship between us and the Lord, to make it tangible to, so that we could actually know his feelings, that we could feel those feelings. And even for those who haven't been married, they had a mom and dad, most likely, and they've seen that marriage. And I've seen people who've actually didn't, they, they, they had orphans who grew up to be psychologists and ended up doing some counseling or whatever, and even someone like that, that is totally doesn't fit into the normal box that we would call, uh, even they understand the power of emotion and connection and marriage simply through having to counsel. Looking at this, that he is El Kanah, that he is a jealous God, this is explicitly in regard to his love for us. This is what consumes. That's the fire that burns. I want to take you to Hosea. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. This is the heart of the Lord. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. Oh, we're talking about Yeshua here. I mean, the relationship between God and his people is that of covenantal marriage. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. And so when the writer of Hebrews comes out, starts, you know, talking about, hey, you better be careful. You better serve God with, with reverence and godly fear. Understand that this is in the context of covenantal marriage. God will not tolerate adultery. He will not tolerate a wife who is unfaithful, a wife whose heart has gone astray, a wife whose heart has turned to her distractions, to her idols, to the things of the world that she exalts higher and higher rather than her husband. He doesn't, he can't handle it. Do you understand what it does to him? It rips him to shreds. Jeremiah 3 verse 20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. I'm going to tell you, when, when Israel sinned against God, when Judah sins against God, it's likened to adultery. There's a reason you say, because this is what it is. You need to understand, and, and this is something tangible. 
that each of us can touch and to know the pain and the suffering that a spouse can cause another spouse. You know, and I've said this before, but I've talked to women who 20 to 30 years after they have been divorced where their husband had cheated on them, they're still feeling the pain. They're still feeling it. That was is so awful, it changes your life. And we're talking in the tangible realm, this, this physical realm of this, what, this gift that we've been given to help us to understand this great spiritual concept of the relationship between us and Yeshua. I've held men weeping and bawling that don't have the strength to get up. Some turning to alcohol, something to kill the pain. They can't handle it. I had friends growing up that some of them went, they, they absolutely lost it. Years upon years to recover. And even then, they're still wounded. When we see those types of things, you need to recall that every time you want to drift off and kind of forget about Yeshua, forget about your husband, forget about the reality of what he's done for you, the pain that you are causing, this horrific pain, and then remember, he is Elkanah. He is a jealous God. He cannot handle it. He can't sit there and watch it. Watch you fornicate with the world. He can't do it. It tears him up. And so you, you look at this passage, and it's frightening. Listen to the Proverbs 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel, and anger a torrent but who is able to stand before jealousy? It's a rhetorical question. Wrath is one thing. I mean, wrath is horrible. You think of wrath. It's nothing compared to jealousy when a wife drifts off and commits adultery. Nothing compared. That jealousy that our husband, Yeshua, has, there's nothing greater. Hence this all consuming fire. Proverbs 6.34 For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. I'm going to say it again. You cannot go off into the world and fornicate and commit adultery against the Lord and expect to walk away from that okay. That is a that is a terrifying thought when we know that our God is Elkanah. And it's interesting that if you go to Exodus 34, this is such a part of who God is, this Kanah, that it's actually said that this is one of his names. And it literally says, and his name is Jealous. I mean, you can go and read it. His name is Jealous. So this is one of the names ascribed to the Most High God is Kanah. I mean, this is how much a part of this is how important it is. And so this is not what we want to do. At the same time, well, I'll save that. Let's go to Song of Songs in chapter 8, verse 6. This is this beautiful love story. This is probably the most poetic book, I would say, in the Bible. The Shulamite to her beloved. Look at this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. 
here you have, and this really is, you know, just a picture of the elect of Israel crying out to her to her husband, her beloved Yeshua, and saying, "Set me as a seal in your heart. Write us in your heart. Put us in your heart. We want you to be consumed in your thoughts every waking moment about us." I mean, this is what's being conveyed here. And, and understand, this is, a, this is a, obviously a highly prophetic book about the relationship between uh, Yeshua and his bride. And when you understand that, what's being uh, alluded to here is the fact that he has written you. Those of you who call upon the name of Yeshua, he has written you as a seal upon his heart. And I'm going to tell you, the one thing that Satan wants to blind you of is that God doesn't care about you at all. That's one of the things that just angers me because that lie, when you buy that lie, you will drift off into total rebellion and total sin, walking away from God, and your faith will just get ripped apart. The truth is you're in every thought of his, or his eye never comes off. And that is an awesome thought, and it is the truth. And so, set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. Look at this, and this is what I wanted to bring up earlier. For love is as strong as death. How awesome is that? Okay, so, talking about Elkanah, which is crazier than wrath, is the fact that our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his bride. Guess what? He's not willing to share you. He's not looking to share you with the world. He's not going to do it. He's not. He can't sit there and watch you fornicate. It rips him up inside. And if you look at past, look at what's happened. He's destroyed people for this. He just destroyed an entire generation of his people in the wilderness because they fornicated. They did not believe in him. Laid them waste. You have Joshua and Caleb that survived. But let's say you drifted off foolishly and you recognize that Yeshua is a Elkanah. He's a jealous God. Here's the beauty of forgiveness. Here's the beauty. We deserve death. But this says love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Love is as strong as death. It is stronger than death. I love what Yeshua says to Martha in John chapter 11. He says to her, whoever believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And the reason is, is because love is stronger than death. God's love is the only thing that is stronger than death is Yeshua. And so there is forgiveness for you. If you turn back, and we've already covered this in so much depth in this series of multiple times of God's plan of redemption, the beauty of repentance, it is there for you. And know it will conquer total death. And know that, yes, Yeshua is Elkanah. He is a jealous God. But when you return to him as a faithful wife, 
watch out. It will be awesome. And so he continues on. Jealousy. Isn't this interesting? We're talking about this amazing love story. We're talking about Elkanah, this jealous God. And all of a sudden, here it comes. Not surprised. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. A nice little warning. It is crueler than the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. We're talking about Gehenna. We are talking about hell. The absence of us embracing our husband Yeshua as the ecclesia. Remember this. I mean, it's this is the very ter- this terrifying warning is the exact warning that the writer in Hebrews is giving to us by telling us, remember. You better remember God is a consuming fire. That means mind your P's and your Q's. Get get your heart straight with the Lord. Prepare your feet to walk on the narrow path. Amen? Jumping ahead here, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. And so you can't quench love. The fire. God is a consuming. Yeshua is a consuming fire. You can't quench it. You can't put it out. If a man would give love for love, all the wealth of his house would be utterly despised. This is exactly what is meant by stating God is an all-consuming fire. Exactly. Now, continuing on in Numbers chapter 5. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. And so here you see the situation. The spirit justly comes upon him. He doesn't know if his wife's been faithful or not. So you know what? I'm taking you to the priest. And he's going to offer this, what is known as this mincha, the grain offering of jealousy. All right? So you don't put any oil on it, no nothing like that, because this this is the only time that you'll find where the grain offering is, 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 in essence, one of the only times you'll find it being used as a sin offering. Sin offerings are always uh, blood. But this is one of the, the rare exceptions where you find that the, this grain offering of jealousy uh, is not. And so, a side issue. But he does this, he comes and he, he brings this offering to the priest, and we're just going to jump to verse 19. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. Okay, continuing. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, Then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, 
Amen. So be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. Why am I showing you this? Because you, you got to understand now, this, there was, this was a practical application, of course, uh, that Israel could utilize in, in regard to the spirit of jealousy coming upon them and wanting to vindicate or condemn their wife, one or the other, because there was no witness involved here. Normally, adultery typically called for what? You're to be stoned. You're to be killed. Well, but if there was no witnesses, well, and the spirit of jealousy comes upon him because this is what happens. It's just interesting how many stories when certain spouses go out and cheat, their spirit of jealousy and knowledge of the issue comes upon the other spouse. I can't tell you how many times uh, this, is, this has happened. Um, stories come back to me. It's, it's really incredible. And so you have this situation, but what you need to see is that there is a spiritual reality here in regard to Yeshua being the husband. And this is such a bizarre thing. This is one of the only times where you're actually going to find, and Numbers 5 is very, very unique in the sense here we find almost something that you would expect to read in a book that talks about spells because you have words literally being written down, the curse and the oath of the Lord. And you'd write it down and you'd scrape these words off in the water, the holy water, and you'd make her drink it that was mixed with dust from the floor of the temple. And she would drink it. But here's the thing. If she had been faithful, that water that brings a curse cannot harm her. It doesn't harm her. I mean, the spirit of jealousy is there, but no harm comes upon her. But if she has been unfaithful, then she's going to receive the curse of God. Now, I'm telling you, when you come into covenant, this is the cup you drink. When you come into covenant with Yeshua, beware. We need to be reminded of this. Satan just wants to keep blinding you. It doesn't matter if you sin. It doesn't matter that you do this. Everybody's doing it. You, trust me, you don't want to go there. See, at the end, when you're talking about Matthew chapter 7, those who claim, oh, Yeshua is my husband. Lord, Lord. They're, they're, they're professing him. They've dedicated their lives to him. And yet they're turned away. He doesn't know them. What ends up happening is because they committed adultery, because you practiced lawlessness, the curse of God comes upon them. This is not what we need to have happen to us. And so I cannot warn you enough. Judgment is coming soon. You do not want this water, the holy water, to find you out and to have that spirit of jealousy bring that curse. That is a terrifying thing. And so remember, El Kanah. God is a jealous God. He is an all-consuming fire. And so uh, with that, Shabbat Shalom to you. Be blessed.